0: Our reading is the last in Titus on this series, so we are in Titus 3, and I'll read verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would uh, honor you by uh, doing a good due diligence study of it, and I pray, Lord, have your Holy Spirit to awaken our spirits by the truth of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I've done before, I'll go ahead and give you what is the complete summary of the series, anyway, on the sermon series. So we had seven messages. The first was following orders. And so we know that Paul had told Titus uh, to accomplish two things, set things in order that were lacking and appoint elders in every city. And that next message was the process by which elders were to be chosen. The third was establishing discipline. He was to stop the mouths of those that were opposing the true teaching of the gospel. Fourth was training troops. He gave specific instructions to the five different social groups there on Crete. The next was honoring heroes. Uh, they all served in this blessed hope, and we all serve in this blessed hope. We want to be free from sin. Uh, be given resurrected bodies and see the Lord Jesus in the flesh. And the last uh, last week was maintaining morale. And he reminded them of their evil past and yet what God had saved them from and this glorious future that awaited them. And today's message is this wrap-up, just these few verses, and it's about Paul communicating plans and including Titus in them. When I gave the outline at the beginning, I spoke of this military theme, and I feel it's even more uh, obvious now that not only Titus, but much of what Paul wrote, had this uh, military vibe to it. Uh, He saw himself as a soldier for God, and so that's how he functioned. It was how he thought. It was how he carried out this work of serving the Lord with all that he was, uh, all that he would ever be. So now, in our initial study, we uh, commented on this outline, this broad outline. He had begun and ended this letter with communication. And just inside of that, and really throughout it, there was this emphasis on discipline. Uh, It's really strewn all throughout it, discipline and training. Now he's sharing future plans. At the beginning, he didn't share those, obviously. He spoke of what he had already told Titus to do. But now that he's wrapping up, he's giving us this glimpse into the future. And Paul's planning is always offensive in nature. Not that he is seeking to offend, but that he is going on the offense. He didn't play the defensive game at all. He was always going after things. If he was having to defend, it was only for a brief Uh, skirmish, and then he was back on the attack. The uh, phrase from Matthew 16, 18 is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom of God. Gates are a defensive measure. The gates of hell will be taken down by the spread of God's kingdom. Now, I need to share something uh, here right at the first verse. Let me go ahead and reread this to you. This is Paul writing to Titus. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Let me read it again. Think about it. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, let me flip to Luke 12 and read something else to you. Luke 12, starting at verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' But he said to him, "'Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you?' And he said to them, "'Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses.' Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, "'The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully,' And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Let me read another one, this one from James 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I'm not done. One more. And this one is, in, is from uh, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly. If the Lord wills, and I will know not the words of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So now you perhaps see the correlation between these three things. So you see in the first that Jesus introduced in Luke 12, you have the presumption of this rich man. Who is going to tear down his barns and build new ones? He's behaving greedily and he's behaving presumptuously. He's presuming upon time, upon God. In James, they are boasting and he calls them on it. He says, Your boasting is evil. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing and he is addressing pride in the congregation in Corinth. And then he says, When he promises to come to them if the Lord wills. Now, DV, you guys know what that means, Deo valente, if God wills, God willing. We, I have seen that more and more in recent months. And so it's being uh, stated in response to anybody planning anything for the future. Paul didn't use it in our text. Paul didn't use it there. Is he disobeying this new premise that we have in Christianity, that we always have to qualify everything we say about the future? No. In context, what was being addressed were sins, and it was sins of presumption, of boasting, and of pride. And so each writer is speaking directly to that issue. And so when Paul isn't addressing that, when he's speaking of his own plans, he doesn't bother to qualify them with that DV, with that God willing. Only this once when he's writing to the Corinthians. So what I'm trying to disabuse us of is going farther than Scripture does. Now, Go ahead and say DV to your heart's delight, you know? I mean, I, th- I don't think that's unwise for you to do. But don't call out other people all the time as if they're sinning when they don't. It's not sin. Paul does it all throughout Scripture. He plans for the future. He acts on the future. He says, I'm going to do this, 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 and that. And you don't see anybody rebuking him for that. You, oh, Paul, you forgot to say DV. You forgot to say God willing. So it's just it's funny too because just this week since i've started reflecting on this text and that occurred to me i thought wow paul is being very aggressive about the future here no no apology whatsoever and so i've begun seeing it more and more and it's fine it's not sinful it's just let's not be so fussy so nitpicky especially when we're rebuking others We are then going too far, I believe. We're going farther than Scripture. Unless there's explicit sin, and we will have to continue to rebuke people that are boastful, prideful, presumptuous. But only then. We don't really need to qualify it every time we speak about a future plan. So what I would say is we need not caveat every statement concerning the future with the disclaimer expressing our mortality and confessing God's sovereignty. It's just not needed. We're Christians. Let's trust one another. Do the right thing. So now... What is Paul planning? That was all an aside. So, let me read verse 12 again. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, opinions vary as to uh, why it is that he's uh, sending Artemis or Tychicus to him. We can see right there, obvious, that he wants Titus to come to him, right? He's going to be in Nicopolis. He wants Titus to come visit him. But Is Titus being replaced fully? Is it only a temporary reprieve? Or in military terms, is it a TDY? Is he just having to go back to visit with the boss for 30 or 60 or 90 days and then come back to Crete again? Or is this a full relief? Is he going to be relieved of his responsibilities and now uh, he's gonna have someone else there? The consensus is that it's a relief. Titus's role on Crete is completing with him having to go visit Paul in Nicopolis. We can't be certain, but yet in context, that appears to be what's happening. And I'd addressed Paul's expectations with the first message, I believe, and that was where I believe Paul expected Titus to complete what he had given him to do, those two things. And now when he's telling him, be sure to come to me, I believe he's presuming that those two things will have been accomplished by that time and so one of these men is going to then take that work over but hopefully Titus will have accomplished what it is that Paul had wanted now maybe he won't have accomplished it by that time that's very possible but then you have to have an explanation for why you didn't complete what it is that you'd been assigned in any military command in any structure you must complete what you're assigned to do in the time allotted and then You uh, go on to do other things. So now, Paul wanted someone to winter in Crete. So he didn't want to leave the churches in Crete without a leader, without someone there to help these newly minted elders that are spread all over this island. But it wasn't going to be Titus. It was going to be one of these guys if Paul could accomplish his plan. Now before we go farther, who are Artemis and Tychicus? Artemis? We have no idea. This is the only reference to him in Scripture. We have several times in the New Testament where someone is referenced only once, and then we really don't have much else to tie it in together. Now, he is mentioned first here, though, so I think from that we can deduce that it's most likely Paul intends to send him. Now, if he he intends to send Tychicus, there is another thing at play, and I think maybe that was the case, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Now, Tychicus, however, he is... Kind of strewn throughout scripture. And let me go ahead and read the references to Tychicus. So we have in Acts 20, Acts 20, verse 4. Oh, I, I don't have to read that one. It's kind of a long text. Um, all of Acts 19, there is this riot in Ephesus. Now, Paul's been there for a while. He and many men have been there for a while. And yet, this growth of the church is constant and occurring there, and this uh, seller of silver idols, Diana idols, is concerned. His, his living is being destroyed. It's being undermined. So there's this huge riot, and uh, they get Paul out of there. And so a bunch of his people, the, his lieutenants, are sent to Troas ahead of them. Go to Troas, meet me there. And then Paul and one other person go by boat to visit them in Troas, And Tychicus was with them. He was one of the seven men that was sent to Troas. And so now I'll turn to Ephesians uh, 6.21. So at the end of the letter of Ephesians, we read this as he's closing it out. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. So Tychicus has brought the letter. Paul has written to the Ephesians. And so he's provided them the letter. They've read it, but now Tychicus can fill them in on all the background. What else has been going on in Paul's life? And then we read uh, Colossians uh, 4, verses 7 through 9, this. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Now this ties the letter of Colossians, what I'm reading from, in with Philemon, the return of the slave Onesimus to Philemon. With, with Paul, having written this letter, asking Philemon to free Onesimus, to serve Paul as a free man, not as a slave. But so this, again, Tychicus has taken this letter from Paul to the church in Colossae, and he has in transit with him uh, Onesimus. And so now I can just kind of flip to uh, Philemon briefly. Oh, I, I won't bother, actually, but, but there are, I'll, I'll maybe read it later. But uh, Tychicus is not referenced in Philemon, but you see that he's present because he carried that letter. He was promised to return Onesimus. So now let me flip though to Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four starting at verse uh, nine. Be diligent to come to me quickly. Now this is Paul's last letter. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And so, see, he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus and he's handing Timothy this letter, I believe. And so that is, it tends to be towards the end of his letters. When he mentions someone's name, they're the ones that are most likely handing him the letter. So, we know one thing about Tychicus. He is an excellent mailman because he's delivered many of Paul's letters. Now we also know more, because uh, Paul's assignment in Crete, to which Ty- Tychicus is a potential, uh, is obviously more than being a mailman. So I don't want to sell Tychicus short. Uh, he is an elder. He's very active in the church, very faithful lieutenant of Paul. So he's mentioned as having gone to Ephesus here now. Was Artemis then sent to Crete, sent to Crete or? Did Tychicus get sent and then return? We don't know, we don't know which one of them went. So we don't know how much time has passed between the writing and I said, both 1 Timothy and Titus are probably written around the same time, around 62, 63 AD. Second Timothy is probably written anywhere from one to three years after that. And all of this occurs after the book of Acts has completed, after Paul has been released from his first imprisonment in Rome. So we know Paul is traveling when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent, come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there, not here. If he were in Nicopolis, he'd say here, but no, he's in Macedonia. He's traveling to Nicopolis. That's where he's going to spend the winter. So now, uh, he was, we know from 1 Timothy that Paul is now in Macedonia, assuming that 1 Timothy and Titus are written around the same time, Paul is in Macedonia, he had just left Ephesus because he tells Timothy when I was with you and then we also know that he's planning to return because in the third chapter of Timothy he tells him when I see you and he's coming to him so he tells Timothy not to leave stay in Ephesus I'll come see you we know that Nicopolis now there are lots of Nicopolises. the the phrase means victory victory city and so various people would would uh, found a city named Nicopolis in honor of some victory they had but this is most likely one of only two candidates. And you see Greece kind of like right here, and over here is, uh, is uh, Israel and, and, and Turkey, and then you've got Greece and Crete. But uh, you've got one potential is up northeast of Greece in Thrace, and another is to the west towards Italy along the Adriatic. And I think it's most likely the Adriatic, but we, again, don't know for sure. It's just, you know, it's nice to kind of hypothesize about what it could be, what it would mean, what it would entail for all the tie-ins of all these things. But we know he's going to spend the winter there. And so he doesn't want to be out on the Mediterranean in the winter. The storms could be rough. Uh, We learned that from when he was uh, being taken to Rome. So Paul wants Titus to join him there. Remember, he wants Timothy to stay in Ephesus. He's given him explicit instructions. But he needs Titus. He's traveling through Macedonia, he's, he's left Ephesus, he's returning to Ephesus, but then he's telling Timothy, or he's telling Titus, come visit me in Nicopolis, come stay the winter with me in Nicopolis. He tells him, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. So it's obvious that Paul needed Titus for something some special duty that he needed to send him on. And it's one for which Titus was uniquely qualified. Otherwise, he would just send Tychicus or Artemis. He's got those guys handy with him right now. And yet he's having this letter delivered such that he can tell Titus, come to me in Nicopolis, I need you. People are all different, different abilities, different strengths, different weaknesses. And Paul knew all of his people and he knew how to value them, how to use them effectively. And, uh, you know, you, when you've been in business a long time, you can see that some people really don't know that. And it's surprising, actually, that people in high positions of authority and power often don't even know that. They don't realize that you have to differentiate between people. For instance, at my work, we have developers, an army of developers. You know, we have, we have probably on this project I'm working on, uh, half of the people, 200 plus people, half of them are developers. And yet, we at one time had a, had a big boss that just seemed to think that we could plug and play, put one anywhere, and, and it wouldn't matter, that they could be equally effective in whatever role they had and whatever, and it's just silly, uh, people aren't like that. Um, I mean, even, even when you penetrate down to the, uh, the fast food ranks If you're a manager of a fast food restaurant, you're not going to put your your slowest, most error-prone employee out at the cash register. They're taking money. You need someone responsible at those cash registers, and so you have to differentiate between people. It's just the nature of things. Out in California, when uh, Tabitha and I were living in a condo there, we had just moved in, and we would walk up to this strip mall up at the end of our road, And we'd go up Saturday morning, we'd have a donut. There was a donut shop and a sandwich shop and then other things, you know, that were in all the strip malls. And uh, I remember developing a friendship kind of with the fellow that ran the sandwich shop. And he intentionally starts businesses. He gets them into the black where they're making money and then he sells them. That was his strength. That was his wheelhouse. He loved doing that. Not everyone can do that. Some people have great difficulty. So when he starts a business, he might have to change a lot of things initially in order to make it productive, make it uh, profit. And so I liked that. I, I thought, wow, this is really cool. And so then he was there about a year, year and a half, and then he sold the business, and he went somewhere else to open up another business. People are all different. And yet what you learn after you've been in something like this, where you're trying to make something, a going concern, where you're trying to accomplish a big project, you have a a bunch of people to choose from. But when something critical comes up, you know you need your best person on it. You just can't place anybody there. You need someone you can rely upon. And so out of an army of people, you might only have a handful of people that you can trust with this particular thing. For instance, you might need someone that can really schmooze. That can go off and meet with your customer and, and, and cover over some horrible failure that you had. Well, you don't want to then send someone out there that is unprepared for that, that will just be swearing at them in a meeting or something. We have people on our team that might potentially do that if they're under stress. They're the people you keep in their cubes. You don't let them go out and talk to the customers. People are all different, different strengths, different weaknesses. But when it comes time to cutting over to production and solving all these problems quickly, that's when you want those people in their cubes to be the most productive because they're great at that. Don't Send them in meetings with the customers, but just have them solving bugs, rapid turnaround. It's great. So, a team consists of all these different people with all these different skills, and the best managers are the ones that know that and employ that. They're wise in making decisions, and I believe that's what's happened here. Paul needs Titus. He needs him in Crete, but finish that work up by winter, and then I need you back here in Nicopolis we have some planning to do. And planning, obviously, in God's church means praying and planning. So now, I want to address verses 13, 14, and to some degree, 15 as well, here now at the heart of this before we go on with something else. Verse 13, "...send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing." Again, this statement just pops out of nowhere. Who are these guys? Well, Zenos, the lawyer, is only mentioned here, so we have no idea. We know he's a lawyer. We don't even know what kind of lawyer. He could be a a domestic lawyer in that area, or he could be a specialist in Jewish law. We don't know. So we do know, however, a little bit about Apollos. Apollos was an amazing, amazing man, very productive in his own right. If you remember when we stumble upon him, Acts 18, he doesn't even know Christ. He doesn't know the resurrection. He doesn't know the Savior came. All he knew was John the Baptist, and yet he's going around preaching this. And then Priscilla and Aquila teach him about this, and then he becomes this incredible preacher, evangelist, uh, proclaiming what Christ has done. He was mighty in the Scriptures, Acts says. Let me go ahead and uh, read that. Uh, He was mighty in the Scriptures. Oh, and let me see. Oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1. Let me just kind of refer to where he's referenced 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 10. Now, this is the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and this is what he says. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's housemaid, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. There are these divisions, and Apollos is ranked right up there with Paul, Peter, and Christ himself. So Apollos is obviously a very charismatic, very influential man that people loved in Corinth. Then I'll flip to the very end of Corinthians. Chapter 16, verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. You know, you could see Paul. I mean, you could just imagine him. Paul, Apollos, I want you to do this. No, Paul, I can't do that. I'm doing this instead. And, and they're having at it. Paul wants to drive the boat. He, he wants to drive everybody's boat. He's got a plan for everybody. But Apollos is like, Paul, I have my own plan. And I'm going to accomplish that plan. So you see that that within even the community, within the church, you've got people who have opposing plans. One's not bad. One's not good. They're both good plans. They're just different. And yet Paul sees in Apollos, I want to use this man. And so if Apollos was weak in some way where, oh, okay, Paul, you need me so much. I'm going to postpone my plans. But Apollos wasn't like that. He was pigheaded too. And so they both pursued their plans, and yet they supported one another, you know, because that's what he says in Titus, doesn't he? He said, send Zenos and Apollos on their way. And listen to how he phrases it. I think it's very respectful. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Now, who delivered this letter to Titus, do you think? Zenos and Apollos. So, see, they're on their way on some work, and Paul has had to convince Apollos, please, 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 stop in Crete and give this letter to Titus. Well, okay, Paul. So, I don't know that Apollos was really, but yet they came together. Synergy, as was defined earlier. Their paths, their plans came together, and so Apollos could help out Paul. It isn't that he didn't want to. It's just he's got his own plans, and obviously they involve a lawyer. So, we don't know where he's going, but yay, go, go get him. So now, verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. He had just said concerning Zenos and Apollos, see that they lack nothing. Then he says, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. What he's telling Titus is, hey, Apollos and Zenos may need some help. Get your people to help them. Get engaged in this we want to support their missionary uh, endeavors just as we're asking them to support ours. This is how the church works. It's not Paul saying, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. He tries, he's a planner, he's got a plan, he's gonna employ all these people if he can, and yet he knows that they're all going in the right direction. So he's trying to get them to, to multiply their fruits, multiply their efforts, and that's how he puts it actually that they may not be unfruitful. We want everybody producing fruit, everybody engaged in this. If you're not planting yourself, you're somehow supporting other people. Now, I want to summarize where we are in this context because it seems like just a little bit, but there's a lot going on. We know Paul had left Titus in Crete months earlier. He then apparently has gone to Ephesus, visited with Timothy, left there, is now in Macedonia. He's writing back to both of them, giving them directions, telling them where he's going to be. We know the, the carriers of some of these letters. We also, I also think that it could be the reason that, uh, that Tychicus, as a matter of fact, what he says here right at the beginning, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, I believe Tychicus was sent to take... 1 Timothy to Timothy, and so Paul doesn't know if he's going to get back in time to be the one that goes to Crete to relieve Titus. That's why he's saying Artemis. Artemis may have to be the one that goes there, but I believe he'd prefer Tychicus to do it myself, but we'll see. Now, what does it matter? You know, I mean, I've drawn an awful lot out of what appears to be fairly sparse text, you have to admit. You have to go to lots of places in the New Testament to ferret this stuff out. Why bother? And I know I have Christian acquaintances that would say that to my face. Rod, you're wasting your time. What you're doing is foolish. What you're doing is useless. It's stupid. You should just be out saving, preaching the gospel and saving souls. Our time here is limited. Don't waste it trying to piece this stuff together. But I'll tell you why it's important. I'll give you two reasons why it's important. First, I'll I'll bring up the lesser one first and then kind of the one that ties more closely into this. First, I think it's important that we as Reformed Christians defend the honor of the Reformed faith. There are Arminians that attack reformed faith and tenets by saying, oh, you're just a fatalist. You just think God has all the plan. He's going to do all the work, and you just sit around and do nothing and read your books. That's what they think. Many Armenians, many of you have probably had conversations that are, go along those lines. Well, let me share with you some of the Calvinists, some of the reformers that have certainly not done that. First is John Calvin himself. Yes, he was an egghead. I, I agree. He wrote a lot and yet, his church in Geneva also sent out many missionaries, missionaries that went to France and were martyred, martyr after martyr. They were, they were uh, minting these young people that wanted to go out and serve the Lord in these far-off lands. They sent missionaries to South America. John Eliot, he was a missionary to the American Indians in the 1600s. He is referred to, they say that if William Carey is the father of modern missions, then uh, John Eliot was the grandfather of modern missions, and he had reached out to the American Indians in the 1600s. Reformed, David Brainerd, even though he died at what 26, 28, very, very young man, but his diary has influenced countless missionaries because this man was sold out to God, and so he was serving in the uh, the American Indian populace, reaching out to them with the gospel in the 1700s, and his. diary has influenced many, many missionaries, and he himself was reformed. Jonathan Edwards was reformed, uh, also supported missionary works to the Indians, very active in the First Great Awakening. George Whitfield, though from Britain, uh, sailed across the ocean 18 times to visit America and very, very central to the First Great Awakening, reformed. Uh, William Carey, the missionary to India, from the between the 17 and 1800s, known as the father of modern missions, he was reformed. Robert Moffat was David Livingstone's father-in-law. They were Congregationalists, Scottish Congregationalists, also reformed. But Robert Moffat was the first to reach into the African interior, and then David Livingstone really reached into the African interior. Then you have Robert Morrison. Who was the first man to really penetrate China with the gospel? Translated the entire Bible into Chinese, uh, reformed. Adoniram Judson went to Burma in the 1800s. He was Baptist, but he was reformed in his beliefs. He believed in predestination. He didn't advocate free will like so many Baptists nowadays. Now let's come into the modern times. D. James Kennedy, you know, evangelism explosion, a strong Presbyterian, but a strong believer in reaching out to the lost. Uh, John Piper, uh, I remember going to a conference uh, back in mid-2005 or six with, uh, with Phil and, and uh, uh, Glenn Durham. And every big conference uh, John Piper has for pastors, he gets people to come up there and commit to entering the mission field. And so uh, he has, a, has a, a heart for missions. And his church has been instrumental in sending many, many people to the mission field and supporting them. And then, of course, the man we know and dear and love uh, from South Africa was Peter Hammond. You know, he's active in missions all over Africa all the time, reformed through and through. All these men reformed, didn't believe man had a free will, didn't believe that God was impinging upon man by exercising sovereignty over them. And yet they reached out over and over and over again to different cultures, different times to save people. Now, that's the first one. That's the first one. I think it's good for us to dig into this, to show the veracity of the Scripture. But the one that ties more closely with this, what I brought out, all these details about Tychicus and uh, Titus, is that the Christian Bible has withstood a lot of criticism over the last 150 years. With modern times, with modern science, has come an intense hatred for the Bible, And so the Bible has had to withstand a lot of criticism, a lot of supposed proofs that disprove it. And yet over the last hundred years, there are at least a hundred proofs, one a year, that go by the wayside. Science changes every year, changes constantly. And yet the Bible hasn't changed a bit in that hundred years. And yet, because the growth of science in the late 1800s, early 1900s was so overwhelming, so many weak Christians abandoned their support of the Bible. Oh, okay, well, yeah, okay. I guess the Bible doesn't really talk to things like death, you know, because you've got evolution that's proclaiming a long history and and all of this death led to life, well, okay. So you had Christians back out of everything and we could run the litany. Theology had always been known as the queen of sciences, and it's really science that has come into being, modern science, and has killed theology as being that central component that ties all of life together. And theology has been beaten back into the churches, and even in the churches, it's not honored, it's not respected. So many churches couldn't care less about theology, and they're stamping out Christians that know nothing about God or His Word. So, these people are all dying off. They won't be here in a generation or two. They won't be Christians. They won't be pretending to be Christians anymore. So, what's important then is that we treat the Bible in the way that God wants us to treat it. It is true. It doesn't just contain truth pertaining to our spiritual lives. It is truth. I love this phrase. I forget where it came from. The Bible is true to everything of which it speaks, and it speaks to everything. So yes, the Bible does not have all knowledge. There are plenty of other books to be filled with things, specialists in this field and that field and that field, but the Bible has something to say about everything on earth. And it's only as we give up the Bible as a source of that truth that we then allow all of these fields, such as geology, such as science, such as the the study of the planets, such as psychology, all of those fields throw God out and his word. And then they go awry, they go astray, because they're not hemmed in, they're not founded on truth. To concoct a story as complex as the Bible. And what I've just knitted together for you concerning delivery of letters and who went where and all this stuff, if this was all made up, it would be so difficult to have maintained consistency across all these things that no one person could have done it. It would have had to have been this team of people producing this. And yet, that isn't what we see. When a team of people produces something, they would produce so, something so much more straightforward, so much more like a textbook than the Bible is. The Bible is difficult, difficult to parse. It certainly wasn't created to be a textbook. It's meant to be more like this huge, enigmatic puzzle that you have to delve into with the Lord's guidance to make any sense of it. And yet, the Westminster Confession speaks of the perspicuity of Scripture as so clear that even the simplest of people cannot deny its role in their salvation. So, see, it's both. It's just amazing what God has created with the Bible. So now, we, I already said that Paul knows how to use people. And so, what is in, incumbent upon then us then, too, is to know how to use people. Now, not everybody is going to be a, a Paul and out Apollos. They had huge support networks. They had people that believed in them and their plans, and they were willing to serve them in that capacity. I I don't have plans like Apollon and Apollos. I'm not driven like that. I am so impressed that there are people like that. And yet, we all together can form these plans and we function as individuals. We can support one another in this network. Most of us are average. We all want to be above average, right? I remember in a survey, it's like like 90% of the people refer to themselves as above average. You know, it just defies math. You can't have that, but we all think that we're in that slim margin above the 50%, above the 90%. So, Titus served for a season in Crete. I believe he served less than a year, and yet he accomplished this to which Paul had given him. Paul, Paul counted upon him to do his work well, and I believe he did. He freed him up for work, and I believe the work is, is hinted at in 2 Timothy, because where, when... When Paul is here, most likely imprisoned in Rome, about to face death, and he sees various men who have left him, abandoned the faith even, uh, sought out the world, and he pleads with them to come. All he had there with him was Luke, and he wants Mark, and he wants Timothy to come. Where was Titus? Titus was in Dalmatia at that time, which is further up the Adriatic beyond Macedonia. That's why Paul is excited. That's why Paul has written to Titus, come to me in Nicopolis. I need you to spend the winter with me because he is laying plans for another evangelism effort reaching much, much further up that coast. And so Paul was still making all of these plans. And even in his final days, he's recounting this. You could tell there's a little bit of sadness there, but there must also be pride, rightfully. Rightfully proud of who all he's affected, all these churches he's planted, all this work that he's done, of course, with God's direction, with God's blessing. The Holy Spirit did all this. He and Apollos and Peter, they were all along for the ride. Christ relied upon them for this. But that's what we want to be. We want to be along for the ride, perhaps, supporting these people, And I believe this church is very supportive. When we have people that have needs, people step up and they meet those needs. Exactly what he's telling uh, Titus to have the people of Crete rely upon. So let each of us purpose to set aggressive goals for ourselves and support the goals of others. And so if we personally don't have very grandiose plans, look for others that you can support. Don't just be content to not have plans and not support others. We want to go support them, seek them out to support them. We all have this vital role to play in supporting others in accomplishing their goals. As we pray, they support us in accomplishing ours. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, Paul, in communicating with Titus, uh, this little three-chapter book has given us such a wonderful outline of how to be uh, productive in our Christian lives. We pray, Lord, please make us aware of the opportunities that abound around us to serve you, to build up your kingdom, to uh, drive back the forces of darkness, to do all that we've discussed through these seven messages. We thank you, Lord, that your Bible can be trusted and that your Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us into all truth and that we must attempt great things for you. And so we pray, Lord, please uh, give us plans, uh, fill our sails with the power of your Holy Spirit.